Major regulatory changes and new rules, which one agency or another does almost daily, require that effective parties be notified. But a notice in the Federal Register may not be enough, and agencies need to do more or they risk losing in court. That's according to a recently completed analysis done on behalf of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Earlier, I spoke with the study co-authors, Yale Law Professor E. Donald Elliott and Pace University Law Professor Josh Galprin. Well, let's begin with the statutory requirement to publish changes, major changes in regulations or new rules or new regulations in the Federal Register. That is all that's required, but it's not enough. Tell us what it is you discovered here. Professor Elliott. Well, in in the 1930s, Congress enacted a, a law called the Federal Register Act that required agencies to publish certain documents in a federal newspaper, uh, the predominant technology of the time. And uh, what we found is that as we've moved into the Internet age, agencies haven't really kept up with technology. They do a pretty good job of publishing notices of proposed rules and final rules in the Federal Register, which is what's required under the 1946 Administrative Procedure Act. But today, about 80% of the laws that we have to abide by at the risk of being uh, sued by the government are are not in formal regulations that are published in the Federal Register. Uh, They're in what are called guidance documents, and those are not necessarily made available. Luckily, there is a constitutional overlay in the background, and that is based on a Supreme Court case which held that notice by publication in a newspaper is not always sufficient if there are easier ways to be in communication. And that was a case where a trust company had actually been communicating with someone with postal mail, and when it came around to an important change in the trust, uh, they just published in the newspaper, and uh, the Supreme Court held that was not sufficient. Uh, There are all already some lower court cases that say that same principle is applicable to agencies. And one of the things we found in the study is that publication in the Federal Register in this newspaper that runs between 70 and 90,000 pages a year works fine for big companies that can hire former agency people and, and consultants to read this newspaper every day. But it really doesn't work for ordinary citizens or smaller groups of citizens or environmental groups. So there's a there's a real unfairness effect here if if agencies don't use some of the modern technology like listservs or email or posting it on their websites, which are sure. really a much more democratic way of dealing with things. Right. So it sounds like they haven't kept up technologically with what's out there because people, industries have their own means of communicating with one another. And it seems like the government needs to be more in tune with how people in reality communicate. Fair? Yeah, I, I think that's right. But one of the things that we saw, and it's a, a more, uh, I, I guess, uh, perverse incentive, uh, we discovered in the course of the study that government employees have a personal incentive, almost a conflict of interest, not to get the word out in the sense that that enhances their value in the private sector. I could tell you some stories, but I, I won't. Uh, but if they know things that people don't know generally, it it helps them be able to, to take advantage of their incentive insider knowledge in the private sector, which uh, which we think is wrong. One of our interviewees pointed that out to us. And at that point, I, I recognize that that's been documented for many years in the in the academic literature. But it's a fundamental problem. Even when President Trump ordered agencies to make all their guidance documents available, when he left office and President Biden came in and revoked that executive order, all the agencies took down their, or many of the agencies, about half the agencies took down their guidance documents, even after having put them up on their website. Got it. So, and guidance documents then 
and have the force of law, so to speak? Not technically, but they are basically stating how the agency interprets its its rules and regulations. So if you don't follow them, you run the risk of getting an enforcement suit. Now, in the enforcement suit, the government still has to prove that that's a correct interpretation of your obligations under the law. But as a practical matter, having spent 40 years in, in law practice, Nobody wants to have the litigation costs of being being sued by the government. This is a problem that was identified in the 1990s by a a late law professor named Robert Anthony, who was also very active in the administrative conference. So technically, they're not binding. But as a practical matter, you ignore them at your peril. Sure. And let's back up for a moment and talk about how you went about the study and how you came to these conclusions. Professor Galpern? Yes. So this is a study that's a qualitative analysis really based on many, many, many interviews that we conducted. We spoke to current and former agency personnel from a variety of different agencies, the so-called independent agencies and executive agencies. We spoke with trade associations and of, of all different sizes, large and small, specific industry and generalist trade associations. We spoke with business owners, including small businesses and micro businesses. We spoke with labor unions, large and small, and a bunch of different public interest organizations, um, environmental groups, immigration groups, international humanitarian organization, lawyers representing all of these organizations, state governments, the list goes on. You probably don't need the full method section, but we, we conducted a ton of interviews and talked to folks that our interviewees told us to talk to. So basically, in short, we were getting the opinion of government officials on what they were doing and what they thought worked and didn't work. And we were getting the opinion of regulated industries and regulatory beneficiaries. And is your major finding then that people that should know things that deserve to know things and that need to know things simply don't know what the government is up to all the time in a way that could affect them and their livelihoods and their businesses. Yes, I think that's a fair way to put it. There is some nuance in terms of you know who has access to what information, but, but our overarching finding is definitely that there are many, many interested parties who do not have access to the information that they want to have and should have. All right. Then and let, what- me just add, let me just add something to that briefly, just as one caveat. Some agencies do a much better job at this than others. Uh, And we identified what we would call best practices. And I think one of the ways to improve things is for agencies across government to adopt some of the techniques that some of the best agencies are already using. All right. Let's, well, let's get to that then. What are some of the best agencies doing? And give us some, you know, if you can recite us chapter and verse, like name the agency and what they're specifically doing. That'd yeah, be really John, helpful. Jess, do you want to start? I mean, one of the conclusions sure. that was very interesting is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach and, and that these things have to be context-specific. So, for example, the, the Coast Guard does a very good job of posting notices at docks to make sure that boat owners know, know, know things, right? Well, that wouldn't work if you didn't have that kind of technique. Similarly, OSHA, I think, uh, requires the posting of various notices in prominent places, usually employee lunchrooms. So uh, this is not you know, rocket science, but it's very effective in terms of uh, reaching people as opposed to publishing it in an enormous newspaper that only lawyers read. Sure. Another example, which is a surprise, although it might make some sense when I explain it, is the IRS. A a lot of folks actually pointed to the IRS as having good outreach and notice strategies, uh, including one of the interviewees from a business group who who was quick to say, we don't we don't like the IRS very much, but they do give us pretty good notice. And so the IRS, of course, doesn't necessarily feel that effective, but that's in part because the IRS is 
regulated community as most of the country, right? So they really have a huge swath of uh, businesses and individuals that they regulate. And so they've, they've had to dedicate a lot to this. So they have uh, an extensive outreach program with a staff, you know, dedicated just to getting information out there in the world. One of the things that they do quite well is interact with intermediary organizations. We've learned that when agencies can find the proper intermediary between the regulated community or regulatory beneficiaries on the ground at the agency, the right intermediaries can play a really important role here. So IRS, for instance, works very closely with accountants and the uh, the trade associations that represent accountants to make sure they know what the rules are so that they can implement them more clearly. So, you know, dedicating staff, having a good outreach plans and using intermediaries are just some of the examples that we found that the best agencies will use. Are there any agencies that really need to uh, improve things? Let's put it that way. That's a good question. I mean, the answer is that all agencies really need to improve things in some aspect of their work. I'm not sure we called out any agencies by name. You know, to put this in context, right, we, we wrote this report for the Administrative Conference of the United States. One of the purposes of the Administrative Conference is to provide recommendations to agencies. So we didn't want to go on the attack uh, in a little bit of concern that that would dull the impact of our findings. Sure. But I'll think on that for a second. And if I come up with something, I will, I will mention it. <laughs> so you have some recommendations for the administrative conference, therefore, of the U.S., the ACUS. Do you have recommendations for agencies or did they just go to the ACUS and then maybe talk about how the ACUS then can influence agencies? Okay, well, the administrative conference of the United States, which we sometimes refer to it by the acronym APIS, makes recommendations to the agencies. Over time, over 90% of them get implemented in whole or in part. So we wrote a report. We made suggestions to the administrative conference. The recommendations really are made by the administrative conference, not by us. And we might have gone farther in a few areas. Basically, the most important recommendation, I think, is that agencies really think about and have a thought-through program or plan for getting notice out to their various constituencies. So we recommended that there be a plan, that somebody be designated within the agency to have responsibility for it, and that there be sharing of information across agencies about what's successful, and that there also should be evaluation by agencies uh, as to uh, what is and is not effective. As you said earlier, companies do this. They they follow up to see what's working and what isn't, and we suggested agencies should, should do the same thing. That contrasts with what happens now, which in my experience as a former general counsel of the Environmental Protection Agency, typically it's simply the lawyers uh, at the agency who uh, ensure that the agency complies with the minimal requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act and the Federal Register Act and doesn't necessarily do things that it could do practically to get the word out. And that's where we think that agencies are taking a risk under the constitutional principles that we talked about before. So the most important thing is agencies need to focus on this and think about how they can get the word out most effectively. And I'll add one short thing, which is just that when you ask where are agencies failing, I think this is the one place where across the board, we didn't find any great examples of agencies doing this kind of proactive notice planning. That's not to say that none are, but in all of our interviews, we didn't really find anybody saying, yes, we've been thinking about this very effectively for a long time. But as Professor Elliott said 
earlier, there's sort of a perverse incentive to not do this. So is there any way around that to get the people that responsible say, well, you really can't think about your next job in industry. You got to do a great job now in government to get the word out of proposed rule changes or new rules? Yeah, I think that's a, a really important point. And I think if you have somebody in an agency who is the person in charge of making sure that notice is effective and who is studying it, that really creates a, a counterweight to uh, individual lawyers, for example, who think, oh, well, you know, I have I have all this uh, detailed knowledge. I don't think that's the only incentive. I think the other concern uh, with making interpretations available is agency Agencies see that as a way, or at least some agencies see that as a way of limiting their flexibility. So if they've said a rule means something in a document, and then they later want to prosecute somebody for doing exactly what they said was legal, and I can cite some examples of that from my own experience at, at EPA. So I do think there are these conflicts of interest. I think the best way to deal with it is to have somebody in the agency whose job and professional career it is to make sure that the agency is getting the word out as effectively as possible. Sounds like we almost need agency rulemaking ombudsmans or maybe the inspector general or someone independent then of the expertise from where the rules get generated. Or simply somebody who recognizes and, and gives awards. I mean, if, uh, if there were an annual award given by the administrative conference, this is not one of the recommendations, but it, it could be. If there were an annual award given by the administrative conference or, or by the president or, or by the Office of Management and Budget for the agency that was doing the best thing, and uh, that would get everybody else's attention. And those awards for positive behavior tend to be much more effective than criticizing people for negative behavior. So I, I think we're going to get more effective notice when we start recognizing and giving rewards for effective notice. And what about social media, by the way? We live in the age of social media, and we presume everybody looks at Twitter or something. Is that a possible channel for this type of notice? Yes, yes. and that's certainly something that we, we recommend. I think you know, you can look at areas where the agency uh, is really trying to get the word out, and they do use more modern techniques like public service announcements, press releases, listservs, where people can, can sign up on the website that they want to receive announcements with regard to a particular subject. EPA has a particularly good website in that uh, regard, and you can sign up for all or only some of the agency's uh, news releases in your areas of, of interest. So if you're interested in environmental justice, you can get the announcements with regard to environmental justice, but you don't have to get them as you don't have to be overwhelmed by notices in, in other areas. So that's one of the recommendations that we make. But we think that email and websites and listservs and social media and public service announcements, some of these modern techniques are low cost ways to supplement the publication in the Federal Register and that they're underutilized by agencies. And Josh, what's been the reaction from ACUS so far of those recommendations? Yeah, well, in, in June, ACUS held its twice biannual, I think, um, large meeting and adopted recommendations. So we, we, as the researchers who write the report, we don't actually write the recommendations, although we can make, we made some proposals in our report. And there, um, ACUS adopted recommendations based on our report in, uh, in June. So these are now official recommendations of the agency. And, and hopefully going back to the question about incentives and so forth earlier, hopefully having these recommendations out there, elevating the issue issue of notice in that way will also add some transparency to what's what's happening on the ground and help uh, help and, advance this. 
And just to add to that, in the course of developing our report and, and in the course of developing recommendations, ACUS convened two agency roundtables of representatives from the various agencies at which we discussed our preliminary findings. And I was encouraged that the reaction was generally very, very favorable. They seemed to like the idea of having notice plans and sharing information uh, about what was effective and working from one agency to another. I think it's really a matter of the government having been sort of deeply mired in just doing what it had been doing since the mm -hmm. 1930s and not really thinking through how the new social media changes things. And that's one reason that we published the article is to try to let agency general counsels know that they do have some legal risks in this area. And I think if they don't update their notice practices to use reasonably available new technologies, that eventually the courts will step in and basically cite the precedents that we've cited that agencies have to do more than just publish it in the Federal Register, particularly in situations where there are easily available alternative techniques that they're not using. Okay. E. Donald Elliott and Josh Galperin are law professors at Yale and Pace. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you thank for you. having us. And we'll post this interview plus a link to their report to the Administrative Conference of the United States at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's 
an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, and I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those too and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right? That kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that. And then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. 
looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. 
But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. 